consideration on the back page of your bulletin. And um, this is from William Evans on how to prepare sermons. Now, this is an interesting thing. You get a lot of these guys um, that have written for a full time. And I'm not going to say that every guy that wrote um, earlier are great writers. There's a lot of bad writers that wrote <laughs> earlier. But some of them seem to have a good perspective. And this guy, William Evans, on his book of how to prepare sermons, he writes this about what proper preaching is. Again, the uh, the proclamation of any kind of message other than the gospel message, which is the truth of God as revealed in the Bible and in Jesus Christ especially, is not preaching. Much of what is heard from the so-called Christian pulpits of today is not real preaching. The discussions of politics, popular authors, current topics, and kindred themes may rightfully be called address and may result in emulation of the orator, but such efforts can in no sense of the word be called preaching, and such men have absolutely no right, so long as they continue to deliver such an address from the pulpit, to be honored name of preachers of the gospel, the message of the very truth of God through man to man, that is preaching. And he nails it, right? He hits it right out of the ballpark. And that's where the problem is in the church today. The church has been turned into a sideshow. It really has, where you get all of these different things. A lot of people look at churches as just a social agency. You know, they don't see that any different from the United Way or any of these other social agencies that, you know, are here for the betterment of the society. And that's what the church has been turned into. It's been turned into a sideshow instead of the accurate preaching and teaching of the word of God. And there's a lot of people who have no time for that. They'll walk through those doors, and when they hear preaching, they're out. They're gone. Well, we're okay with that. (laughs) I mean, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But we're going to make sure that you're not going to say that Grace Bible Church was not preaching or teaching the word. Uh, And so by the grace of God, we would hope that that would never happen. When I was a kid um, in um, school, they would test your knowledge, and they would give you a paper, and they would ask you which of these things are not like the other. Have you ever had that? And there would be pictures that they would show you. Which of these things are not like the other? And so the whole point of that was to test your understanding of what you know. And you can think of that when it comes to um, Scripture, as we talked about how important it is for the believer to be girded in truth. And it's very important, and it's important when you, when you look at overcoming Satan. And so in the world system, as we just t- talked about, and just let me show you the verse here in the introduction. In Revelation chapter 12, in verse, I think it's around verse 9, we don't think about it often, but you, do, you know that most of what's out in the world is not the way things really are. It's just lie after lie after lie after lie. It's not things that, a lot of things that are not true. They're just not true at all. Now, we could name some of them. Some of them have gone to extremes today, right, with the gender identity, right? Well, you know, this is just an absolute lie. Um, And so you, you could fill in the gaps of a lot of those kind of things, right? But notice in Revelation 12 why that's the case. And so notice in verse um, 
7. And there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which, what does he do? Deceives. He's deceiving the whole world. And he has all the mechanisms to do it. He's got the communications mechanisms. He's got schools. He's got entertainment. All of these things he's using to uh, paint a picture to people of things that are absolutely not true. And you listen to people talk. And you say, well, yeah, that's not true. But you won't convince them that that's not true because they believe, well, so-and-so said, well, I got this off of this, or I got this from this book, or I got this. Okay, does it really matter where you got it from? It ain't true. It ain't true. And you you can fight people to the death. They will fight to the death believing a lie. It's the most fascinating thing I've seen in this world. That lies are more believed than truth. And where is it coming from? Well, we just read it here. Satan uses the mechanisms of this world to keep the people in the world wandering. He doesn't want you to know, particularly believers, the truth. Because as long as you don't know that, you'll be locked into your own little world, confused, fearful, and not doing what God wants you to do. That's what he wants. You talk to a lot of believers. They are so off the beaten path. It's sad. It's really sad that they don't see what God has actually provided for them and how much simpler their life would be if they were able to submit to what he's provided. And so you have that. And so as what causes that to be the case? Well, Peter was talking to the believers in First Peter. These believers were suffering, and you can go back in history and you can see it. Uh, Nero had set Rome on fire and he blamed it on the Christians. And there was a lot of persecution that, that uh, came out uh, against Christians because, uh, and the Christians were, were under severe pressure. And many of them had run from Rome. And Peter, here you see Peter in First Peter, he stands his ground. He doesn't run. So see how Peter changed? He goes from being scared of a little slave girl who said, weren't you, with, weren't you one of his disciples? No, I'm not. So now, a few years later, he's under severe persecution and he's writing these other believers from Rome. He doesn't run. And what does he say to them? Well, let's go over there in First Peter and you'll see. It's just really fascinating what he says to them. And he stores off the chapter, and notice he talks about, really, you have a textual issue here in the first verse in that 
they put elect down in verse 2 when it really should be, it's really in the original in verse 1. And really you could translate that to the elect strangers, right? They were, God had chosen them in eternity past to go through this. And so there's nothing that you and I will go through that God says, oh man, I'm shocked. Oops, missed that one. Sorry, fell asleep there a second. (laughs) It's nothing that you and I will ever experience that he's surprised by or shocked by at all. And notice as he goes down through here, um, he talks to them about what God has done uh, and this great salvation we have. And he goes on and then he gets to the heart of the issue that he wants to deal with them about because when you're under pressure and you're under persecution, uh, one of the first things that go is that you just dispense and fear sets in and you, you lose it, right? And he gives us some insight about how to deal with Satan. What does he say here? And we're going to tie this to Satan because we can see it over in Ephesians 6 that this ideal of your mind and being able to gird up your mind is huge. Being able to understand and see things the way they really are. We have accepted so many things in this world, premises that are not true. They're not true. They're not right. And they really affect your thinking. They really do. So what does he say to the saints here in verse 13? Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, when I think of loins, I think of uh, meat. <laughs> right? <laughs> Tenderloin, yeah. <laughs> kind of makes you hungry thinking about it. <laughs> well, that's not what he's talking about. But you're going to see this issue of the loins of the mind. It's a very important issue regarding Satan. It's a very important issue. Uh, Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that shall be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so how does the believer defend against Satan? We've been talking about the manipulations of the conclusions of your mind. And how do you defend yourself against this? Well, we'll see today, it is very important that as you put on the armor, that you're able to see things the way they really are. Where Satan really gets a big field day and gets a lot of victory is when the believer is not seeing things the way they really are. We're measuring things the wrong way. And you could see that a lot. I mean, I'm just, it's ironic today, all of the things that are going on in the church and how people are measuring that. People are measuring success of a church according to world system standards. They're measuring even spirituality according to world system standards. If you're not seeing things the way they really are, you're going to be susceptible to really being hoodwinked by Satan, and we'll see it. 
Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers, we can see things the way they really are, that we can see ourselves the way we really are as the Holy Spirit is able to shine the light on the subject matter, as we're able to see ourselves through your word, that we can see where we really are in a lot of situations, that we can see things, your word, your promises, we can see these things and have an appreciation for them. And we're so thankful that as we're able to understand these things, that we can guard ourselves, particularly against Satan and the things that he does to manipulate the conclusions of our mind. And we're so thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so in First Peter 1.13, he talks about this word for mind. And, and we, we've uh, <clears throat> talked about this before, that in, in uh, the whole idea of mind um, is a thing that is uh, where you see that it's important to understand the languages because there's several words that are translated mind in the New Testament. And this word is an interesting word, and we've talked about it in last uh, Monday in the Christian Life class. And this word is the word dianoia. And it looks at the thoughts as they're going through the mind. The thoughts as they're going through the mind. And remember, we talked about this, and we'll see it, that uh, this is the same word that is used in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, that uh, God's going to give Israel a new covenant during the millennial kingdom in which he's going to put their law, his laws in their minds. Now, as a result of him putting their, his laws in their minds, they're going to be able to obey him. Well, what word did he use here in, in, in that context in Hebrews 8? He uses this word. So as the thoughts are going through the minds, they will have, in, as the thoughts are going through their minds, all of the things that God wants them to do, and they'll be able to do it. You see, this really is, affects how you see things. And so we're going to see it. Now, this word is a compound word, and it's, uh, you have the Greek preposition dia, which means through, things that go through something. And then you have the word noia, and it's, the word, it's actually from the word noose, which is, uh, and I would give it this definition, the faculties of perceiving and understanding those of feeling, judging, and determining. And so you can see this word used and how it affects people. And we'll turn to Romans one twenty-eight here in a second. But this... Um, you have thoughts as they go through the mind, and I think Courtney did an excellent job uh, last summer, summer before last, of talking about imagination. So as your thoughts go through the mind, from those thoughts come conceptions or imaginations. Now, we understand that. You sit up, thought, a thought goes through your mind, and then all of a sudden you'll lock in on one thought, and then other things start coming from that. And before you know it, you're kind of in his days, just thinking about different things that it came from that one thought. We call it daydreaming. <laughs> but notice in Romans 1, we see this word used over in Romans chapter 1 of those back at the Tower of Babel during that time. And so, um, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, uh,
And so notice in, uh, did I say 128? Yeah, I think it is, 128. A reprobate mind is, I think it's, uh, yeah, no, I was looking for the word, um, it's actually not the word that I wanted to, um, the one that I wanted, but, but anyway, verse 28, and even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, um, and it's really, it's the word there, it's adakamazo, a, a uh, to do the things which are not convenient. And so this ideal here is an untested mind. Um, actually, I was focused on the word news there. It's an untested mind. Now, Dianoia is seen, uh, and I would give it this, this uh, definition, that component of the mind where thoughts trigger concepts, ideas, and imaginations. And so you see that in composition used in several places. And um, we won't go back into... Uh, the, this, but it's in the Septuagint, it translates the word in the Hebrew, it's the word yatsar, and it denotes the imagination of the mind, which is conceived or concluded. And uh, you see it used that way in um, Genesis, for example, uh, chapter 6 and verse 5. Well, let's just look at 6 5 there. Can't help myself here. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, for this, for this moment. <laughs> okay, Genesis 6, Genesis 6, 5. So here, um, and so here you see, again, we talked about it last Monday, this issue of the um, sons of God, and Don has done a great, great work on the, the offsprings of this uh, relationship. Uh, see him, he has a lot of information he can send you. But uh, in verse 4, it says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of a, a renown, or I would say men of a reputation. And so you had these offsprings, uh, these uh, sons of God is always used in the Old Testament of angels. Not one time in... Our Hebrew instructor back there can confirm this. Not one time in the Old Testament is the sons of God used of people. Not one. And so these are angels, and they cohabitate with women. And what does it produce? Uh, Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts. And so you have this uh, Yasar, so you have the thoughts that are going through the minds, and then as the thought go through the mind, they, pre- they produce concepts, imaginations, right? And I, I really believe that um, uh, this, is, this is a real important thing to understand with regard to stability in the Christian life. And, and so it, and his heart was evil continually. Now, I, and I would also say, just as an aside, you know, it's, you know, people say that it was the violence on the earth that the reason that God destroyed the earth, I think it was more than that, right? It was much more than that. And you see it in verse 12 where it's, he says, and God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted, his, corrupted its way, all flesh. And so that's interesting to see. But this ideal of the mind 
and notice how it affected the people during that, that time. And I, I believe that there was satanic involvement there, right? Where Satan was, had did this thing with these uh, spirit beings and corrupting and trying to corrupt the gene pool. How did that affect the people and how they saw it? You see, this is happening today in which Satan uses the world system and it affects how you see what's really going on. So now everybody wanted to have one of these. It became the thing to have. If you had some big behemoth during that time in an agricultural society and they were able to do the work for you, uh, hey, everybody wanted one of those. And so I think you can see a similar thing of what's happening and as he's done throughout the course of time as he's manipulating things in the world system is he does things that affects the conceptions of the mind as the thoughts are going through the mind, and that makes a huge difference. So now you have Dionoia is used 13 times in the New Testament. Two times it's used in the Ephesians epistle. Now this word Dionoia is, um, is the place where Israel's conception uh, uh, of God was not properly formulated, impacting their behavior. Um, and so you can see that in several places. But let's start here in Ephesians. I do want to remind you that this verse is here, uh, and it's of the unsaved man. And it really gives you insight into what his mindset is like, that as the thoughts are flowing through his mind and he's coming through to conceptions and conclusions, they will never be things related to the truth of God's word. Now, I'm not going to say that there's not religious stuff. There may be even thoughts going through their mind concerning the Bible. But it may, it's not going to be things that are actually accurate. So notice in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as the Gentiles walk. And notice what he says here, um, in the vanity of their minds. Now you have the, the bigger term for mind there, which is the word noose, and it's talking about just the, the totality of the mind. Now he's going to specify a specific part of the mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them through the, uh, because of the blindness of their hearts. See that word understanding? It's our same word. I don't understand why they translated it understanding. Well, maybe that makes sense that as the thoughts are going through the mind, they're giving you some insight about how you're seeing things, you see. And that can really be affected. What are you really seeing, and how do you really understand it? And that can be manipulated in a lot of different ways. Just look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8 with uh, Israel, and the promise that is made to them that God's going to change this aspect of their mind. Hebrews 8, and notice, uh, let's pick it up, if we would, in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place be, uh, have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, said the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, said the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. And there is our word there. So the thoughts as they go through the mind will be the things that God wanted from his law. And I will write them in their hearts. And I will be to do, for them to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And so this, here's this new covenant and how it will affect the mind of Israel. And so you see that that's a huge thing. The thoughts that are going through your mind and the conceptions that come from them are very important. And that uh, they uh, have an impact. And so notice believers sometimes have this part of the mind aroused as to God's plan. Look at Second Peter 3 in verse 1. Second Peter 3 in verse 1. And so it, it's seen in a different light and from a spiritual point of view uh, concerning how the mind can be affected in this way. In Second Peter chapter uh, 3 and verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds. And so, again, this thoughts as they're going through, they're giving you some kind of insight and Peter was writing to stir this up in these saints, and it's by way of remembrance. And he uses this quite a bit of trying to remind the saints of what is true. That what they're going through, God had already said that this was going to happen. Remember, he asked them, why are you so amazed at the trials that you're going through? And so it wasn't something that they should have been. And so God had already promised it. And so there is this aspect of the mind that as the thoughts go through the mind, that they affect how you're seeing things. And so Peter was writing to these believers about girding up the loins of their mind. Now we're going to see this as we pivot over from 1 Peter 1.13. And let's start there and we're going to end in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. So go back, to, if you would, to 1 Peter 1.13. And he says, this word for gird up, this word girding is the, uh, it's, uh, today men don't wear girdles. Well, some do. (laughs) Well, I remember back in the day, there was this football player that played for Oklahoma State, and um, he used to have problems with his hamstring. So nobody knew it, but he wore a girdle under his football uniform because he said it helped his hamstrings. Uh, to not uh, malfunction, and so, but very few. But back during that time, they had girdles where they would girt, they would uh, tie around their flowing robes to keep it from impeding them when they were either in battle or they were doing something that would cause this girdle to get in the, this uh, robe to get in the way. And so they would put a girdle around in order to bind it and to keep it stable. And that's what's being in play here. 
So the word for gird here is actually, um, and I give you just a little background here, is a practice of early people who, in order to be unimpeded in their movements, were accustomed when they were about to start on a journey or engage in any work to bind their long flowing garments closely around their bodies and to fasten them with leather girdles. And so you see this word used several times in scripture of this idea. Let me show you a couple of places. Look at uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Luke 12 and verse 35. So as the Lord is talking um, here in his sermon, he says, um, verse 30, 29, And seek not ye what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither be ye doubtful of doubtful mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, for your father knows that you have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you, that which you have and give alms. Provide yourself bags with wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that fell not. Wherefore, no thief approaches, neither the moth corrupt. Now these people who believe that we're under the Gospels and the Gospels are applicable for today, um, have you sold what you had? Uh, you know, it says here you need to sell off everything you got. <laughs> and so you would have to do that unless you would pick and choose. Verse four, 34, for, uh, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And so this idea of being ready and so this idea of your loins be girded or to be um, fastened about is the ideal there. And notice you see it again in uh, uh, John twenty one eighteen. John twenty one eighteen. Verily I say unto you, this is the, uh, the Lord is talking to Peter, and you know the um, history behind this context, I think you do, uh, of where the Lord asked Peter about feeding his sheep. And notice in verse 18, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, when thou wert young, thou girdest thyself, or really to clothe yourself, and walketh whither thou would, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee, or to bind thee. And carry thee where you wouldn't. And so the idea of girding to bind, um, it's to bind an object uh, is the idea behind it. So here when Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1.13, girding or binding the loins of your mind, well, what is he talking about here? The word loins is actually is used physically uh, to denote the part of the body from the waist up that uh, contains the essential organs and so it's used metaphorically for the essential part of the mind that affects how believers con- conceive the circumstances that they might find themselves in. And so it's used in a, in a, metaphor, in a physical sense of the, a certain part of the body that uh, needs protection where the organs are, but it's used in a metaphorical sense in Scripture uh, of uh, uh, conceiving the circumstances that one might find themselves in. And you see it used that way in, in, in 1 Peter 1.13. And, and 
one of the connections that you can see with this idea of loins, and we can see that he's not talking about the physical body here, but that he's talking about something more important, and you see it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. And so we come to how to overcome Satan. How do you overcome Satan? You cannot overcome Satan with conventional weapons. They don't work. You have to use the armor of God, which is a spiritual weapon that deals with this spiritual problem that you're approached by and <clears throat> dealing with Satan. And one of the first things that you see as you come over here, I would start with verse 10. And one of the things you see is that it's, it, it's impossible to overcome Satan if I'm not first overcoming my sin nature by living in my position in Christ. I'm not going to be able to overcome Satan if I can't overcome, or if I'm not living in my position in Christ, uh, I'm not going to be able to overcome him. Notice in verse 10, one of the first prerequisites to be able to uh, defend myself against Satan. Uh, verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. So that word be strong is actually is to be empowered. There is an empowerment that the believer can get by living in his position in Christ. That as I live in my position in Christ, and here it is the word Lord, I think here is more specifically being talking about you living in your position where he is my master, I am a servant. Now, I, I really believe there's a correlation between this and a couple of verses, as you see in both in James and First Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That when you find the ideal that I think that I'm more than what I am, there's the opportunity, I think, that I'm going to really be under a lot of satanic attack. And so this idea of being empowered, again, we've, we've gone over to Second Timothy 2, verse 1, and you see this. There's an empowerment, there's an invigoration that the believer gets when you live in your position in Christ. And so what does that mean? As I live in light of who God says that I am. So just stop just for a second and look at this. God sees me as being part of the new creation. Who I was before I came into this world. Over. The moment I believe the facts of the gospel. The problem is is that when we are living just from a physical realm, we continue to identify with who we are as physical beings. A lot of people will not let it go. When you get around your family, you become that person you were in your family. When you get around your old friends, that's how you identify yourself. A lot of people will not identify themselves the way that God sees you and me. So let's just look at a couple of scriptures here. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new and the word creature is not the word, um, not probably, I don't think it, none of us are monsters here. Uh, I don't know why I translated it that way. It's actually the word katizo, a form of it. It means you're part of a new creation. 
So what does he mean there? When you were born into this world, you were born into this world in Adam. The moment you believe the facts of the gospel, Christ died on the cross for our sins and he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. You were moved from this position in Adam over into a new position in Christ. So how does it affect you? It affects you from the point, this is how God sees you. This is how God sees you. He doesn't see you as you were born into this world. He sees you as you are. The moment that you believe the facts of the gospel, the Holy Spirit moved you from this position over into a completely different position. This is sometimes hard for us to understand because we don't see it. It's an imputed position. You count it to be so. And again, the best way that I can explain it is through banking. Banking is mostly imputed today. You understand that? If you went and tried to get all of your money out of the bank, they probably wouldn't give it to you. They probably don't have it. Most banking anymore is just numbers. It's not really cash. It's just numbers. So you call and you tell them to move your money from one account to the other. They're just doing it on a computer, right? And you walk out and say, okay, it's done. And on the basis of them moving that money, you now operate and go and write checks or make transactions on the basis of that. You've counted it to be so. You and I are asked to count what God has done on our behalf to be so. That we are now in a part of a new creation. We are, we're part of the new creation that from God's reckoning, we're seated right there at his right hand in Christ. Now notice in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, as he quickened us together with Christ, by grace are we saved. And notice verse 6, and he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places where? In Christ. And you might say to yourself, well, my body's here on the earth. Well, your body may be here on the earth, but who you are from God's point of view is right there at his right hand. That God sees you sitting right there at his right hand in Christ. And so your members are here on the earth, but who you are from God's reckoning is right there at his right hand. So this is essential to understand. I cannot actually operate or function in this life if I don't apprehend this because it is what allows the Holy Spirit to be at work in my life. Otherwise, if I continue to see myself the way that I was born into this world as, then I'm going to operate that way until I've been changed. And so notice, he says, verse uh, 7, that in the ages to come, he might show his exceeding riches of his grace by his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is a gift of God, not out of works, lest any man should boast. 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, Jesus unto good works which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. So he's already got the good works planned out. I don't have to make them up. You know what he does? As I allow the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit leads me down the path of those good works that God already has for me to accomplish. I don't even have to make it up. All I have to do is allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide me down that pathway. Now notice in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Since you've been risen together with Christ. So we just saw in Ephesians chapter 2 that we've been raised together with him. That we're sitting together with him at the right hand. Since you've been risen together with Christ, you seek out those things that are above. So here's an imperative to the believer. Now, you can tell somebody something and you can say, hey, you know what? If I were you, this is what I would do. I've had people here recently uh, because I retired. Some of my other comrades that used to work for that are still working with FedEx have uh, contacted me and asked me my advice about retirement. And so I gave my advice, though I don't think they listened to it. <laughs> but I told them, if I were you, and this is exactly what I told them, I would do this. I think one of them listened. The rest of them didn't. And so you can tell someone something. Hey, if you understand what's in your best interest, this is what you should do. And that's what he's saying here. Since you've been risen with Christ, if you know what's in your best interest, you should seek out those things that are above. You, the believer, look for them. Search for what it is that God has said about who you are in Christ. It's interesting, a lot of people, and I've had a sister-in-law who does genealogy. She's more interested in our family genealogy than she is her own. And she's researched it. She knows more about my family than I do. And she's just into this. Searching, I don't care, honestly. I've always thought about searching out the genealogies, how people, you might find something back there you don't want to know. <laughs> Some relatives that you might not want to reveal. But, so they do that. What about taking that same mindset and seeking out who you are now? Who am I? What does this mean, this new relationship that I have with Christ? That I've been risen together with him? I'm sitting up at it because it's right there in scripture. There's all these great things that are said about the benefits that we have and who we are. So he says, you seek out those things that are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your set with affection is your frame of mind. On things above, not things on the earth. Now, I think this is significant. For you are dead and your life is hid together with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you shall appear with him in glory. And so the believer has been raised together with Christ. And so Paul tells the, the believers as he goes, these Ephesian believers, as he talks to them about overcoming Satan, be empowered in the Lord. Why does he say that? Because we have all of these things in this position and there's an empowerment that we can get as we live out our position in Christ. And that's necessary in order to be able to really combat Satan. 
And then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at what else he says here. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles is actually the methodologies of Satan, or the, of the devil. And so all these different words uh, for, the, for Satan, um, I mean, these different words are uh, used for uh, a purpose. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. And really, it's in the heavenlies. And so he, he sets the standard that it's not people that we're fighting against. Um, somebody gave us a movie once. It was one of those little B-movies, kind of chintzy movie that they make. And the name of the movie is called They Live. You ever seen that? Anybody seen that movie? Well, what it was, it was these aliens had come to the earth and they had taken on human bodies. And you could only see them if you had these special glasses. Right? If you had these special, <laughs> if you had these special glasses, you could actually see who they are. So Satan is using people. You notice demons have not occurred. They have not appeared to you, I hope. Uh, but they're using, he's using people to approach you. And so Paul is saying it's not, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood and that Satan uses people in this world to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish. And so you can get so upset with people and, and be uh, in the dumps with people but when it's actually Satan or I would say more specifically demons that are using people, you see, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Wherefore, take uh, on to uh, take on to you the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand, uh, uh, really, I would say to resist. Uh, this word antihistamine, uh, is there's a purpose here that you uh, have taken on the armor? The purpose of taking on the armor is that you might be able to withstand or to resist in the evil day. And so this idea of being able to actually resist what Satan is bringing your way. Uh, and notice, he says, in the evil day, Satan is not attacking you all the time. Well, I would say that Satan probably is not attacking most people all the time. I think that most of the attacks that people get are from demons. And we can conclude this because of the fact that Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time, so mostly what he, you're getting attacks from is demons. Now, here's the point that we were trying to get to. Verse 14. Stand therefore, verse 14. Oh, excuse me, I didn't finish the other verse. And, and, and having all, done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt with truth. You see? Now, what does he mean, your loins? Is he talking about this part of your body where you have the most specific um, uh, targeted organs? that can be damaged, that would do damage to you? No. Remember? We have a definition of for loins right back over in 1 Peter three one thirteen. The loins belonging to your mind. You see? Having your loins, the thoughts that are going through your mind. You see? Girth with what? Truth. Truth. Now, what is truth? 
No, I sounded like Pilate saying that. <laughs> what is truth? Well, truth, as you see it in Scripture, and, and I like the way and, uh, Dr. Schaefer gave a definition, and I really think it's a good definition. I try not to change a definition unless I see that it's, it's used in a different way. And, and his was, in seeing things the way they really are, seeing things the way they really are, do you know you and I are in a world where we're deluded a lot? where we're deceived by things, people will tell us things, and we find out, maybe it might take us a second, but we find out later, that ain't true. Right? But you have in Scripture um, an identification of what is true and what really is the way that God says it is, you see. We're in a world, as we saw back in Revelation 12, that is filled with things. Satan has filled the world system in concepts and things that are not true. Now, some of them are so egregious, they're spilling over, and we can see them today, right? They're very obvious to see. Some are not so obvious to see. Some are not so obvious to see. And so here you have the first part of putting on the armor, uh, this idea of loins girt with truth. Now, this is interesting because this word here is um, you have truth. And so when you have um, an a, um, article used with a word, you're specifying a particular thing. And I, I've given you the illustration before. I see a boy. So when I say I see a boy, you would think, well, this, he doesn't really know the guy. Just some kind of boy. But if I say, I see the boy, you immediately say, oh, there's something specific about that boy that he knows about, right? Well, this is what's happening here in this verse. It's not the truth. It's your armor, having your loins girt with truth. Truth. Now, let me show you places where that is used that way. Let's look at first in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1. Now notice here concerning the, uh, the Lord Jesus when he was uh, on the earth. Uh, we'll start with verse 11. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, or really I would say authority, to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and truth. You see that? He was the embodiment of what is real. The way things really are. He, he embodied that, you see. Notice again in, in John chapter 4, you see it again. John chapter 4 in verse 23. And you see the woman at the well. And it's used that way again. 
in John chapter 4. And notice the woman is, is uh, talking to the Lord. In verse 19, the woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship? And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh and, and when you shall neither worship uh, in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Notice what he says in verse 23. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You see that? Today, we worship the Father in the realm of our spirit. That You don't have to be in a certain location to worship God. Do you realize that? You could worship God as you're driving down the street. Hopefully you keep your eyes open. You can worship God anywhere. And notice in spirit and in truth, according to what is real, what is right, according to scripture. There's a lot of people worshiping God and they're not worshiping him according to what is true. They've made it up. And how do you know they've made it up? They can't prove it by scripture. And so he says, having your loins gird with truth. Now, I do want to show you here in John chapter 8, you have the articular use of it. And it's interesting. It's talking about a specific, specific truth. But I think in Ephesians, he's talking about truth in general. I just wanted to go here because I just love this chapter. <laughs> it's just as the Lord is talking to his disciples. Or to, he's talking to a lot of the Jews. Some of them believe, some of them don't. Notice what happens here. It's just interesting. It's fascinating to me, the interplay here. And so notice, we'll pick it up in verse 32. And, verse, and what does he say in verse 32? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So he says there's a specific truth that's coming that you're going to be able to know. And when you know that, it's going to set you free from your sin nature. And notice, they don't understand what he's saying. They think that he's talking about physical bondage. And notice verse 33. And this is what happens. Again, there's illumination that is necessary to understand what's true. And they were not even in the same ballpark. They just didn't understand what was happening here. Verse 33. Then answered him, we be Abraham's seed and we were in bond, never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou <clears throat> you shall be made free? And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin, or really I would say the one doing sin, is a servant of the sin nature. Right? So this idea of continually doing the sin nature, if you're continually engaging in the sin nature, you are a servant of it. It's controlling you, you see. Doesn't mean that we don't do individual sins, but this idea is practicing it. And so notice he says, and the servant abides not into the house forever, but the son abides forever. And if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You see that? 
he can, he really can, and people are looking for all other kind of things to make him free, and, and they're still in bondage. Notice verse 37, I know you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen of your father. Oh boy, this is not what you want to say to people if you want to win friends, right? Now he's going to even up the ante. Verse 39, they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, and you're not, I would supply that as the way that it's working in the language, you would do the works of Abraham, and you don't. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham You do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, you're of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you are willing to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. So if Satan is the God of this world or the God of this age and he's the prince of this world, do you think he's filling this world with truth? Does he have the capacity to fill this world with truth? Absolutely not. And notice, there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. He's the originator of lies. And so the whole world is filled with this. And so as the believer is not able to see things the way they really are, how we... Our direction becomes very clouded. These believers over in First Peter, as he was talking to them as a result of the things they were going through, they didn't understand what was going on. And it was because Satan had uh, really manipulated that. Notice the last thing we want to look at is Satan uses deception to cause the whole world to wander. Now we saw that in um, the uh, Revelation 12, but look at 20 and verse 10 as well. Revelation twenty ten. And so uh, the schedule of things that are going to occur, you have the rapture. Uh, it's the next event on God's calendar. Some people say we're close to it. I don't know. I'm, I hope we are. <laughs> then you have the tribulation period. The next thing after the tribulation period, you have seven years of tribulation. The next thing at the end of the tribulation period is you have the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And so God comes back or Christ comes back and he judges everybody on the face of the earth when he comes back at the end of the tribulation period. And they're going to be judged on the basis of whether they believe the good news that is preached during the tribulation period. You see that in Revelation chapter 14. Those who believe go into the millennial kingdom. Those who do not believe are immediately consigned to Hades. 
immediately. And so here you have it, it's on the other side of that. Now notice what happens, and so you, he sets up the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and in doing so, Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years, the length of the millennial kingdom. And so notice you see in verse 10, this is what it's saying. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. Um, oh, I'm sorry, we're on the end of it. This, let's go on even past that. This is past the millennial kingdom. This is at the end when uh, Satan is led up out of uh, uh, Hades and he comes back and he tries to deceive at the end of the millennial kingdom. This is at the end of the millennial kingdom. Let's go back and just get context to show you that. Verse 7, and when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them together to battle, and the number of whom is the sand of the sea. And when um, they went up, the breadth of the earth encompassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out from heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is into the ages of the ages. And so um, notice the devil, the one deceiving them. The word there is planao, causing men to wonder. It's the word that we get from planets. So to cause things or people to wander away from where they ought to be. And so that's what he's doing. And lastly, in 1 John 5, 19, here you see it concerning Satan. First John 5, 19. In verse 18, uh, Paul writes, or John writes, so used to saying Paul, we know that whosoever is born from God sinneth not. This doesn't mean that people are, that you're sinlessly perfect. It has the ideal that he's not one who continues doing sin. But he that is begotten of God keepeth him, and the, and the wicked one touches him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in, that word in wickedness is really is in the evil one. And so you have this issue where Satan uses things to wonder, cause men to wonder from what is true. How do you do it? And one of the things you see in putting on the armor, and we'll look at the rest of it next week, having your loins girt with truth. Seeing things the way that they really are. In the world, you are not going to get that. If you're trying to order your life by the constructs of this world, you're going to be lost. You're going to be all over the map. Unfortunately, I see a lot of believers, they try to rely on their intellect. They think that they're so smart that they can figure life out. And Satan is having a field day with them. You're not going to be able to use your smartness. That's no match for him. God has provided a means for doing it. And it's girding up the loins of your mind, putting on the whole armor, and we'll see the rest of it next week. Lord willing, if the rapture doesn't occur.